Thank you. Scotty. <laughs> so funny, I've been calling him Scotty the whole time I've been here, because that's what I call him. I call him Scotty. And everybody's just, you know, well, Scott, Pastor Scott, Scott. And I'm just like, I have no idea who you people are talking about. He's Scotty, the man who talks about how good God is, but he says he's good. He's, he's good, good, good father. And it's just like that was the first thing I fell in love with, that accent. I could listen to that all day. So just a, a, a teeny tiny bit uh, about me. I'm, I work at Imago Day Community, which is in Portland, and we have a couple of campuses, but over there I oversee global outreach and spiritual formation and also prayer. So I was so, so happy to see this pre-prayer, pre-church service prayer. And I, I was taking pictures. I don't know if you guys saw me taking pictures because I totally planned to bring that to Imago, and I can hear people now going, where'd you learn that from? And I was, <laughs> gonna say hey look let's just talk about this and we need to do this because it was so powerful and I felt like I already had church before I got to church and then on top of that I get to see Renee here who is the prayer diva queen of praying and I just I loved seeing her and it was almost like God saying I told you you were supposed to be here today because she just walked up and said hi and I just said it, you ever just have God put a stamp on something and say, yeah, I told you to do that thing. And she is that, yeah, I told you to do that thing. And so I'm just really happy to see her here. Um, as I said, I work at Imago Day, and I've been here in Portland for four years and some change. And I got here for Snowmageddon four years ago. In fact, just before I got here, because I'm thinking Portland's just a rainy place, but just before I got here, uh, Rick McKinley's wife, who is our pastor, she, she sent me a text and said, I hope you have snow boots, because this is my backyard. And I said, this is, this is Oregon? This is Portland? And when I first got here, I thought to myself, what is wrong with these people? They get so excited when it's sunny outside. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever gone to a coffee shop or someplace when it's sunny. Like right now, if you go to a coffee shop today, they're going to be like, hi, how's it going? <laughs> how's your day out there? What can I get started for you? That is what they're going to be doing. They're just bright, huge, gigantic smiles. And I thought, what is wrong with these people? I'm one of these people now. <laughs> I got up this morning, and I just said, it's, it's sunny outside. He's like, hi, how are you doing? It's like, what's going on? I'm in the mirror, brushing my teeth. What's going on? This is going to be great. I got to brush them extra good, because I'm going to be smiling a lot today, because it's sunny outside. And so I'm, I'm one of you now in that respect, where I'm so happy when I see the sun. I do not know what to do. I'm so happy. The first five months that I was here, it was just gloomy, and I walked outside of my apartment one day and just yelled up at the sky. And I just said, come on already! Are you serious? I didn't care who saw me in the parking lot. I didn't care who, what they thought of me or if they thought I was strange, but I screamed and yelled at God the very, like, five months in. I was like, no place in the world is supposed to look like this for five solid months. <laughs> And I guess God was like, oh, I'll teach you how to smile when it's sunny outside. <laughs> so we're not here by accident. Nobody is here in this place by accident today. 
my life, my entire life, work life, into ministry, the transition, has always been about me walking through doors that God has opened and closed. And I remember when he first called and said, you are going to be a pastor. When he, when he said that to me, I said, because I grew up in a Baptist church, and my first thought was, yeah, women don't do that. Women aren't pastors. Women don't preach. Women don't do any of that stuff. So here's our deal. I'm not going to chase this. You are going to have to lead me. I promise I will walk through every door that opens, but you're going to have to open those doors. And so my entire life from that day to this, which is about 15 to 20 years now, has been a process of me just walking through open doors and just saying, oh, that door opened, I'm just going to walk through it. That door opened, I'm going to walk through it. And I've been, I've been at churches where people have, have watched me come down from preaching to tell me, to inform me that women are not called to do this, that women are not supposed to be doing this. And, and I just say, you probably should have told me that before. I just did the sermon because <laughs> I'm done. And, and, I'm, and, and I'm convinced that it's okay. I had somebody call me from China and tell me that she had been sharing my sermons with somebody there. And when they found out, when the group found out that I was female, because she had just been saying Pastor Jones, when they found out I was female, they said to her, don't share anything else. And she called me from China in tears. And I said, don't worry about it. Because if there's something that I say that they need to hear, God will either change their minds or he will, give a, he will send them a guy to say it. It's okay. This is God's work and this is what he does. And I'm all right to just walk through doors or not walk through a door. And I'm really okay with that. And I, I think it's important to remember that, that when we're thinking about the things that God has called us to do, there are no accidents. So if, if a person shows up at church and looks at me and says, she's not supposed to be doing that, my answer is always, don't listen to me, listen to God. I will gladly be the jawbone of an ass for God. I will, I will be happy to be one of the foolish things that he uses to confound the wise. But at the end of the day, we're here to listen to him. And so, like Jesus said, listen to God right now. You know, like the angel says, just hear him. Hear what he has to say. And so as we gather today and as we talk today, I'm going to trust my love for you to carry us through this. I'm going to trust God's love for you, and I want you to trust him as well. So I understand you guys are in the book of Acts, and I understand that you guys have been really walking through what it means to be the church and to be ordinary people who follow and believe in an extraordinary God. And I love that. So I'm going to be not necessarily a commercial break because I'll stay in the book of Acts today, but I'm going to be kind of like that Pixar um, film or that Disney film where they show the other film before you see the actual movie. And it's like, you know, kind of like that thing where you see like, you know, what is it, Hair Love or Bow or one of those little movies that you see before the Pixar movie. That's what I'm going to be today. So I'm going to kind of not take you out of the book of Acts, but I'm going to kind of feel like one of those little movies that comes before the actual movie of, of next week. So I'm going to be a, a bit of a break for you. I'm, we're going to meet eventually in um, the book of Acts in Acts 9, where Luke is introducing us to Saul of Tarsus. 
And just, uh, you know, we know him better as the Apostle Paul. By the way, that whole Saul-Paul thing, it's kind of no big deal. It's not like it was Abraham, you know, who got his name changed from Abram to Abraham, or, or it's not Jacob who was name was changed to Israel and it was like kind of a big deal. Saul, Paul, they're kind of interchangeable. As a matter of fact, we see in Acts 13 that it says Saul, who was also called Paul. It's, it's kind of no big deal that his name was. He didn't, he wasn't a bad guy as Saul and all of a sudden he becomes a good guy with Paul. It's, it's, it's all the same, just FYI. But I want to begin there but I want to kind of move us back so that we have a lens with which to actually look at Acts 9. So the church was born in Acts 2, and I know that you guys have already gone through that. But from book 2, from chapter 2, all the way through chapter 7, we see this church growing in amazing ways in Jerusalem. It is incredible, and I know Scotty talked to you a little bit about that last week and some other, you know, passages, but all the way through there. But from 2 to 7, just FYI, the church is growing in Jerusalem. And why does this matter to us, and why is it significant? It's significant because if you go back to Acts 1 and 8, right before Jesus catches a cloud and goes back to heaven, one of the things he says is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. That's a pretty specific instruction. You are going to be my witnesses here, 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 and here. So from chapters 2 to chapter 7, the church is here. Not here, not here, not here. It's growing by thousands every day, but it is not going. It's growing, but it's sitting still. It's growing, but it's having people come in. It's having all of these human beings come into the church, but nobody's going out. And it's not until Stephen preaches his very famous uh, sermon. Stephen preaches his sermon and becomes the very first martyr. Stick a pin in that. And he ushers in a persecution of the church, and they all scatter. In fact, it says in Acts 8.1, it says on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now, Paul, also called Saul, was right there in the mix, but for now, we're, we're, we're looking at the fact that when Stephen gets stoned and when he dies at the end of chapter 7, he's killed by a very angry crowd who rushes him, and it says they rushed Stephen after they tossed their coats at the feet of a guy named Saul. Imagine that. He's standing there, and some guy's like, I gotta kill that guy, hold my coat. Saul's like, sure. And so he's probably not just kicking it, he's probably really as angry or as upset or as violent in his heart, in his mind, as the rest of them. A little later on, Paul would talk about how it was this sin of envy that came home to him, just kind of as a side note. And when we think about that, I wonder if that envy that he noticed in himself before he was saved was actually envy about a guy named Stephen who loved Jesus so much that he was willing to die for him and in the middle of his dying said, forgive them because they have no idea what they're doing. But that's just an aside note. That's a commercial for the little 
for the little side, side film. But, but Saul, what I, want, what I want you to see is that Saul was no innocent bystander in all of this. In fact, in, in Acts 8 and 1, it says, even before it talks about the believers scattering, it says, Saul approved of their killing of Stephen. Saul approved of it. And so it says in Acts 8, it says that godly men buried Stephen, and then they mourned for him deeply. But then Acts 8 and 3 says, but Saul, you've got godly men who are mourning and who are sorrowful. Then they contrast, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. That word to destroy, it means he wrecked havoc on it. It meant he just, he just messed it up. Imagine going into some place and just totally throwing everything over it. He was doing this with the church. Isn't that amazing that he could do that? You've got this church that's growing by thousands every day, and one dude can walk in the middle of it and just mess it all up. We've seen that happen in churches. I know I've seen that happen in churches where somebody can just walk in the door because they just hate it and they just go after it. And that is what Saul did. But it says in Acts 8, it says that, therefore, those people who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. A theologian named Albert Barnes, I think he had the right of it. He said, it becomes a settled principle that nothing which is good and true can be destroyed by persecution, but that the effect ultimately is to establish more firmly and to spread more widely that which it was designed to overthrow. So you've got this crazy dude named Paul who goes in to wreak havoc. He begins to persecute this this baby church, and the effect of it is that it spreads. It begins to do exactly what Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. Because of what Paul was doing, his goal is to destroy the church, and the very effect that it has is the opposite. It spreads the church out. Now, clearly, Saul doesn't believe in what Mr. Barnes said because we find him at the chop of chapter 9 asking for and getting written permission to go out past Judea past Samaria, into Damascus. That's uttermost parts during those times. So that he could find Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem and toss them into prison. That's his plan. So we all know the famous story. Paul's on his road to Damascus, and it's pretty familiar in chapter 9, and you guys will probably hear all about that from Scotty or somebody else um, a little later on, and you hear that story about Paul getting knocked off his horse and getting blind, and all that's really good, but I don't really want to talk about Paul today. Because here's the interesting thing. Paul is, is pretty black and white. His story is like, you know, life was bad, then it's good. He's on his way this way, he goes this way. But I want to talk to you today because it's hard for us to sometimes look at Paul. We, we have a hard time relating to Paul, I think, because we look at him and we just go, there's no way I could be that dude. When you look at the things that he did, you look at the way he behaved, you look at just how in he was, all the way up to his eyeballs, it's hard to relate to him. So I don't really want to talk about him today. For our intents and purposes today, my little Pixar movie is going to be about another guy. 
I want to look at the guy that Paul talked to right after Jesus, a guy named Ananias. Now, Paul's story is really dramatic, but when you look at Ananias, I think that Ananias is what more of us are when we're trying to figure out how to figure this thing out. More of us can relate to Ananias. With Paul, like I said, things are very black and white. With Ananias, he challenges our faith in really nuanced ways. So our text for today is going to be Acts 9, verses 10 through 18. And let's, let's take a look at it, and then we'll pick it apart. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask him for, how is that? Go to Judas on Straight Street. I like that. There's something about going to a straight street to like deal with stuff, but I just think that's God's sense of humor. And ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man, I said, I yell that because he yells it. Jesus really yells that to him, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again and he got up and he was baptized. Now Acts is kind of an account of what it looks like when average people know and live for an above average extraordinary God. Ananias is an average dude. He's being asked to do something way out of his comfort zone. And so as we look at him today, I want us to see the ways in which a guy like Ananias challenges us. So the first thing I want you to see is that Ananias challenges us because living for Christ challenges our openness to God's will. If we look at verses 11 and 12, Jesus is asking a whole lot from Ananias. He's saying, when you look at this, Ananias talks back to Jesus and he says, he says, uh, the Lord says, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, ask for a man named Saul, he's praying, and then it says, in a vision, I need you to go, place your hands on him, and restore his sight. Ananias does not see Paul in terms of his calling. He doesn't see Paul as a person. He sees Paul as a problem. He sees him as a problem. And he sees him as a problem for the church. But Jesus is saying, go find him. Go help him. Go love him. The gospel at times is really inconvenient, isn't it? And let's face it, Jesus never had really good taste in friends. So he sends us to people that we don't really want to go to, right? 
So he will send us to tax collectors and crippled people and sick people and lepers and all sorts of people. He will send us out into the margins when we would really be satisfied to just stay where we are. And so now here he is sending Ananias out to the person who is the enemy of the church. He's sending him out to this place where he sees this person and he's saying, go help him, go love him, go touch him, go teach him, go be with him, go and be with him. Don't call him, don't text him. Don't get online and create a YouTube video so that he can just kind of look at it from a distance. You cannot love people at arm's length. You gotta go. One of Jesus' names is, I went. I am Emmanuel, I showed up. I'm God showing up. And if that is one of his very names, we kind of can't escape that whole showing up thing, right? We cannot get past that. So the question that I have for you when you look at Ananias challenging you is who have you written off? Who have you seen as unsavable or unsalvageable or unworthy? Because you see, sometimes the hardest way to get into the church for some people is because people can't see past their past. You can't see past a person. People often define you by the biggest mistake you ever made. I did some work at OSP at Oregon State Penitentiary and one of the guys said to me while we were there, he's like, I get out in three months, where, are you, where is your church? And will I be welcome? I said, yeah, you'll be welcome. This is my church and this is where it is and show up and I'm into that. I can hear this clicking on here so I'm gonna take this earring off just for you because I know I can hear that clicking which means you guys can probably hear it which means it'll be on YouTube. <laughs> so here's the thing. We love quoting John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should perish, but have, should not perish, but have everlasting life. That, that whole world means exactly that, whole world. That whoever, my old pastor used to say, whosoever, because he was really old. He said, whosoever, God says, but whoever means whoever. It means there's nobody outside of whoever. And can we take the same journey that Ananias did to go out to the margins, to go out to people that may seem unworthy or enemies or not like us or don't believe like us? Can we go out there? Can we do that? That's way easier said than done. But here's the cool thing about Ananias, because even though it challenged his openness to God's will, it did not challenge his willingness to be honest with God. And when we're walking with God, a guy like Ananias inspires us to be honest about where we are. He says in verse 13 and 14, it says, Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all of those who call on your name. This is what I love about Ananias. He's trying to tell Jesus what the situation is. <laughs> and we do that, right? Jesus says, go here, and we want to tell Jesus all the reasons that's a bad idea. Now, the thing I love about that is that Jesus was no different. Jesus walked into the Garden of Gethsemane and said, okay, look, I'm just going to tell you, this is really hard. <laughs> and I kind of don't want to do this. 
But here's what I love about just that, is that if we are honest with God and we tell him where we are, he allows that to happen. And he allows us to happen because if we can offer up the truth as we know it to God, then God will use that. We use it as a landing place, don't we? We use it to say, okay, look, this is the sitch, God. This is where we are. This is what is going on. And God says, what I need you to do is I need you to use that as your jumping off place. Truth is not just a landing place, but it's a jumping off place to follow God with our imagination instead of leading him with our imagination is the key. Because what we do with God is we say, okay, here's where we are. As if to say, join me here so that you can, you can agree with me. And God's like, no, in the same way that you jump on a trampoline, you land hard, but whoosh, I need you to jump off from that place. And so Jesus says to him, I need you to use your imagination. I need you to go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Who would have imagined that Paul was going to be that guy? That public enemy number one for the church was God's chosen vessel to spread the gospel. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. I wouldn't have imagined it. Ananias straight up said, I can't imagine that. Because this is where we are. But God wants us to engage our imaginations. Because here's the thing. Your understanding and your information and your knowledge can only keep you where you are. What is required is for God to ignite the imagination and take you where you need to go. And you don't know where that is. That's what God would have you do. So when we look at this, we think about the fact that we worry about making space for people. How are we going to talk to them? How are you going to relate to them? And we're honest with God. We have no idea. I've had people come to me when I've spoken at churches and they've said, well, how do we reach out to communities of color? I live in a neighborhood where there are no people of color. Okay. Let me ignite your imagination about how you can do that. And so then we get to have a conversation because the willingness to actually engage with God in a way that he can take you beyond what you're already thinking, what you're already doing, what you already desire, what you already know is the goal. Because truthfully, if you had all the answers, Jesus could have stayed in heaven and he wouldn't have had to bother with the cross. But we don't. We wouldn't have needed the Holy Spirit. He could be kicking it, watching the football game every Sunday. He wouldn't have to come down here and bother with any of us. He wouldn't have to blow on one single person in here because we'd already know what we need to do with what we already know. But he was, honest. he was honest with God about where he was, and then God said, that's good. I know you're there. Now watch me take you beyond where you are. Because so much of what we don't do in churches is chalked up to a lack of imagination, right? We just can't imagine it. 
But God is like, I can imagine it. And so I need you to follow me with your imagination, not lead me with your imagination. There is a God who, from Genesis to Revelation and beyond, has been doing this to each and every one of us. And we're busy going, and he's going, come here, come to me. I have loved you with an everlasting love, and in loving kindness I have drawn you to me. He's the one doing this. Because if, we, if he meets us where we are, and he does, if that's the only place he's going to be, then everything's going to be just where you are. I am amazed at the two thieves on the cross. Their time is up. It's done. It's over. But one of them says, here's the truth. I want to jump off from here. And Jesus is like, I got you. The other one's like, this is where we are. This one's like, can I, can, I, can I get past where I am? And Jesus is like, I got you. I want Jesus to say that to me every day. I want to wake up and say, this is where I am. Where are we going? I want to run after that. I want him to do this, and I want to run after that every time I see it. What space has Jesus already made that he's just asking you to step into. Because there's space that he's already made for people in your life. You just gotta say yeah. You just gotta be willing to go. So Ananias also challenges the level of your investment in this thing. If you look at verse 17 in this passage, it says, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The thing I like about this passage is that Paul repeats this story later on in the book of Acts. He repeats it in Acts 22. He's telling somebody, you know, let me tell you about this dude named Ananias. And he starts to tell this story. Because story is one of those ways that we just bring God back from where we were up into the present so that we can kind of get people to relate. And the way he tells this story is very cool. He's talking about, he's talking about how, how Ananias went from being that guy, enemy of the church, don't want to go see him, to walking up and saying, brother. He's like, now you're brother. He makes that move. But in the way Paul describes it in Acts 22, Paul says, Ananias came up to me and said, Brother, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness, stick a pin in that word witness, to all people. They went from being enemies to being on the same side. Because here's what I need you to see about a guy named Ananias, is that conflict doesn't come between us in the church. It comes against us as the church. If we don't understand that, we're gonna struggle. If we don't understand that, then we will be divided inside the church. Conflict comes against the church. And the goal in conflict is to be on the same side. Reconciliation is us being on the same side against conflict.
conflict that comes at the church. I am saddened every time I see how divided the church can be. I wonder what Paul would think if he looked at this. But they're now on the same side. Consider what this meant for Paul. Consider the fact that Paul's on his road to Damascus. Jesus knocks him off his, off his horse. Paul is so zealous. He's like, he's like Elijah and all those prophets in the Old Testament. He would kill for God. And he says this. I would kill for him. I went to go get papers to do that. Because I believe in God. I believe in the God of Israel. I believe in that God so much so that I am willing to get rid of these Christians who are against him. And in that moment when he meets Jesus, his life is simultaneously made and destroyed at the same time. The very thing he's devoted his life to, he finds out, is the very thing he is fighting against. How hard must that have been for him? He needed somebody willing to walk with him in that place. He had to have been wrecked in that moment, crushed by the very God he swore he was fighting for. How must that have been for him? He needed a brother to walk with him. He needed somebody to say, I get it. I see you that at the moment that he was struck blind was when he actually could see. He could actually see in that place. We have a habit when people are disagreeing with us in the church. We brand them as wrong. Then we brand them as enemy. And we brand them as other. Who do we dismiss within the church simply because they have different political views than we do. We other people. Who within the body have you given yourself permission to dismiss? Because the minute we realize the answer to that question, then we also have to realize that what we are doing, we're doing to Jesus. Because on the road to Damascus, Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because what we do to one, we do to him. Because when Ananias was resisting Paul, resisting going to see Paul, he was resisting Jesus. When we make excuses for why we won't go, we're making excuses for why we are refusing to love like Jesus loves. We are not rejecting those people on the margins. We're rejecting Jesus because he says what you've done unto the least of these, you've done unto me. When I was thirsty, you gave me water. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was a prisoner, you came to visit me, me, me. This is going to become the shape of everything that Paul would preach this understanding and this idea that when we do unto others, we are doing it for and with and to Jesus. He would carry the burden of that for the rest of his life. And he would teach us by writing the lion's share of the New Testament what it means 
to be the people of God in this world in a way that was very different from the way he was brought up to understand. But there would be no Paul without Ananias. There would be no Paul if there was not an Ananias who believed that there was no one outside of the reach of God's grace. There would be no Paul if there was no Ananias willing to expose his own fears to God and his own prejudices, and and he was willing to actually expose it to the scrutiny of the one who could get him past those prejudices. There would be no Paul without an Ananias who was fully invested in offering up a place of belonging and fellowship to somebody who was about as other as you could get in the church. There would be no me if not for the Ananiases in my life. Many of you are here because an Ananias reached out to you. And now God is saying to each and every one of us, I need you to be willing to be Ananias. And I need you to engage that imagination of yours and go out to the people who don't look like you, who don't act like you, who don't believe like you, who don't talk like you or walk like you. I need you to go out to those people. I need you to de-other some folks. Who have you written off in your family that God is saying, I need you to be Ananias in your house to? Who have you written off in your neighborhood? Who have you written off on your job? Where is Jesus challenging you to imagine space for somebody that he has already made where you don't see that there's space in your heart, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your life? And he's saying, I've already made space for them. I have made space for them. What brother have you othered? And and, and separated from you. We're called to go and be witnesses. I told you to stick a pin in that word martyr with Stephen, and I told you to stick a pin in that word witnesses in Acts. And the reason I said that is because that word witness, that Greek word is a word from which we get our word martyr. So when Jesus says, I want you to be a witness, he says, I want you to put some skin in the game. I want you to be willing to die. I want you to put some heart in the game. I want you to put your life in the game. I'm not telling you not to ask questions, but I am telling you to let God have the last word. He can take a question, but when he answers you, go. If he yells at you, go. If he points to the margins, go. If you're in your house and you look out your window and you see somebody that he says, that one right there, go. Even if you have no idea what you're going to say, go. It's not like he's not going to tell you when you get there. And if he doesn't, you get to stand in front of that person and say, I'm standing here because I think God told me to stand in front of you, but I have absolutely no idea what to say. (laughs) You can actually do that. There will be times when God will tell you to go, and he expects you to go. He expects this church to go. The questions we often ask in churches are, who am I and why am I here? Those questions are not the place. Those are questions that are a place on the way to a place. 
They're on the way to the place of who needs something, what do they need? Who do I serve and what do they need? So who am I and why am I here? Who needs me? Who do I serve? What do they need? And in doing that, you come to the bigger question. Who are we? And why are we here? Who needs us? And who do we serve? And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what we're called to. So, room full of Ananiases. Let's pray and ask God to show us where we're going and show us what we're going to do. Father, we thank you for the time that you give to us. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't need any of us, but you desire all of us. We see your crooked finger, and we raise you by saying, here we go. We're coming. Where do you want us to go? Who do you want us to serve? What do those people need? You will provide all the things. Thank you, Lord, for Ananias and his witness. Thank you for Paul and his witness. Thank you for the two of them in their brotherhood. Father, make us those people. Make us people willing to go, willing to challenge ourselves, willing to trust you. I thank you, Lord, for allowing me to go all the way out to Hillsboro to speak with my brothers and sisters today. I thank you for your example, Jesus. Amen.